Good evening. It's good to see all of you here tonight. I appreciate your presence, and uh, it's been a good day. We've had a, a lot of things take place this week, and uh, today uh, especially as well. Um, our leadership camp, as you know, was this past week, and a lot of work went into that, a lot of people behind the scenes, and uh, there's no way we can thank everybody. Uh, there were people that kept folks in their house and uh, just a lot of running and work, and Justin mentioned that this morning, but we just want to especially say thank you. It was a great week. Good, uh, good group of young people were here, and uh, that, that was encouraging. Then this week also, today was graduation for uh, our second year students, and uh, we hate to see them go, but uh, we're proud of their accomplishments, and um, that was, uh, took place this afternoon. We also honored uh, James Meadows this afternoon. Uh, he has uh, retired from teaching, and we um, wanted to recognize our appreciation to him for all the things that he's done through the years for us. And um, if you haven't done that already, uh, take a minute and, and let him know what you think of him. And also, I want to make some, a mention to something of, of something that maybe we haven't said enough about. Um, probably haven't. Well, we haven't. Uh, it, it's kind of slipped up on us with the, the busyness of the things that have been going on. But um, just recently, uh, House to House, Heart to Heart, we, we get that publication and we pass them out. We don't have it actually mailed, but we do receive it and, and pass it out to our friends and neighborhoods. But in this latest issue, it had the question of, um, I had this nagging feeling that I'm not saved. And the whole issue was dedicated to that question. Um, and it's a great lead-in to your friends and your family, your neighbors, your co-workers. And uh, so we um, had that issue mailed to, well, everywhere around here, pretty much, um, uh, on this side of the hill and on the other side of the hill over there. And so they will be, or if they haven't already received, they will be receiving that issue that has that question. In the meantime, on June the 22nd, we're going to preach a sermon on that topic as well. Uh, how can I know for sure I'm saved? And there are some cards out there in the foyer that we would like for you to pick up. Uh, this isn't going to be as, uh, going to be as big as Friends and Family Day our friendship day, but we do want you to use these cards and take advantage, and maybe you know some folks that you might say, here, we're, we're talking about this, or maybe they got this in the mail, and now you hand them something. Uh, we, we, might, we, we want to have visitors here that day, and we want to make it as plain and simple and to answer those questions, because there are, I'm sure there are people who have those nagging fears you know, in this world of religious confusion, have I really done the right thing? Really? Could I have been misled? I want to know for sure. Well, that's what we want to do on the 22nd. So we have two weeks. There are, there are cards in the foyer. Grab some on your way out tonight and hand it to a coworker tomorrow or a friend, a neighbor, and, and invite some folks to come on that particular uh, Sunday. Now, tonight... What I'd like for us to do is really, um, I guess, piggyback on what we did this week. I taught a class, or one of the classes that I taught this past week with the young guys, is, was a class on Bible study, and, and how, do you, how do you meditate on the Word of God? 
Now, we've talked about this theme before, and I want to give some practical pieces of advice tonight that will just help us, I believe, be better students of the Bible. The, The reading of Scripture is important. Paul instructed Timothy not to neglect that. He said, give attention to reading. And so I'm not going to dismiss or discredit reading the Bible. And many people probably have done or are doing that, you know, well, if you read three chapters a day in a year, you can read the Bible all the way through. Some of you may have done that for years and years. If you read nine chapters a day, you can read the New Testament through in a month. And so read nine chapters a day and you can read the New Testament through 12 times in a year. Um, Nothing wrong at all, and that's a good thing to read. But let me ask you this. Have you ever read the Bible and then get frustrated when you hear guys like, you know, James or Edwin pull things from the text and you say, you know, I've read that and I never saw that before. How is it that they're able to do that? How, how can they look at the same passage that I look at and they get so much more out of it than I do? Have you ever felt that way? It, you know, there, there are people that just seem to draw out things and I said, I never saw that. Wow, you're right. That's it. That's a good, great point. Well, I think it comes not through just reading the Scriptures, but it comes through meditating on the Scriptures. And, and what I mean by meditating is not just simply a, you know, a contemplation, while that's part of it, but there are certain questions that we can ask, certain guidelines to follow, certain procedures that we can implement that will guide us in our meditation And I'd like to just do a few of those with you tonight uh, to give you the idea of how it works and how you can do the same thing. Those insights aren't reserved for those who have gone to school and had extra training and so forth. Those insights are there for you. All you have to do is just know how to mind them out. And so let's look at some of those principles of Bible study tonight. But I want you to see, you know, in Psalm 119, if you turn there, I want you to turn there. And I want you to look at how many times <clears throat> meditation is used in that passage. Psalm 19 is kind of the A to Z of Bible study. The value of God's Word and the preciousness of it. Uh, and, and so here's what he says. Look at verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. Look at verse 23. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Look at verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts so that I may meditate on your wonderful works. Look at verse 48. My hands also will lift up your commandment, to your commandment, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Look at verse 78. Let the proud be ashamed, for they have treated me wrongfully with falsehood, but I will meditate on your precepts. Look at verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 99. Um, 
I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. And then again in verse 148. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. This is just a sampling of how the, the psalmist would meditate on the word of God. He would get up in the middle of the night and think about and contemplate and, and meditate on God's word during the night watches. There's value to that. And it's through that process that you find those things that you wish you'd find, but you haven't been able to pull out by just maybe reading. So let's look at some uh, things that maybe we can put into practice. And maybe you want to write this down and say, you know, that's one of the things. When I start reading, that's one of the things that I'm going to do. I'm going to remember to check on these things. First of all, how about visualizing the passage? You know, we're talking about meditation. We're talking about mulling things over in your mind. And as we do that, there are a number of players in any given context. And, and, and usually we look at the players from behind the shoulder of maybe the speaker. But what if you looked at the players or what if you looked at the situation from another player's vantage point? How might that affect the story and the outcome and your take on the story. Um, get involved in the emotions of it. You know, put yourself there. Uh, Brother Dow Flat used to say, you know, put on your first century glasses and, and let's uh, get to work. The idea of looking at it as though you were there, it makes all the difference in the world. I know a couple of years ago I shared a sermon on this, but not everybody was here then, so I want to share it again. But um, maybe not many of you, maybe some of you remember, he's an obscure character in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Eliam. He's not well known, he's mentioned a few times, but we do get a little bit of information about his family. Eliam was an Old Testament character, he had a daughter, and and she grew up, and, and he married her off, and... Um, one day when uh, her husband, Eliam's son-in-law, was away at work, uh, some men came to the house where his daughter lived and took her, and their master violated her. And then they weren't even done. They, they, they then went and murdered her husband, or at least had him murdered. How do you think Eliam must have felt how angry would you be as a father if your daughter was violated and if your son-in-law was murdered? How hard would it be to contain yourself? You say, I don't remember that story. Yes, you do. That's the story of David and Bathsheba. It's just told through the eyes of Eliam, Bathsheba's father. You see, 1 Samuel tells us or excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 11 and verse 3 tells us that Eliam was the father of Bathsheba. And see, you know, I can look at David and say, oh, David's one of my heroes, man. I, yeah, I know, I know he committed adultery, he murdered, had Uriah murdered, I know that. But he's one of my heroes. He, he was a man after God's own heart. And, and I can real easily forgive him. But what if you were Eliam? Think of that perspective on that story. How much harder might it have been for Eliam to have forgiven David, who took his daughter and murdered his son-in-law? 
Maybe there's a lesson there about forgiveness. You know, it's easy to forgive people until you really have an enemy. And Eliam had an enemy, uh, or at least someone who did great harm to his family. And so, you know, by just not looking over the shoulder of Nathan the prophet, or not simply looking over the shoulder of David, or not just simply looking over the shoulder of Bathsheba, but picking another player in that story might open up some insights that we never would have thought about before. Also, here's another thing that we can do to help us to see things in, the, in passages that maybe we don't normally see, and it's to consider the people connections in a passage. There, like I said, there are players in any given context, and, and when you see these players in a given context, consider and think about... Are, what dynamic is going on between these two people? Do they have history? Is there something that I can learn from past relations that might help to explain present situations? And so by doing a little meditating and studying on, like if there's a story and you look at the three characters in that story, go back and look and study each one of those characters and learn more about their life, and then some things might open up to you. For instance... There was a man by the name of Ahithophel in 2 Samuel who was a close and trusted advisor of David. His advice to David was that of God. I mean, he was dependable. He was a rock for David. But yet Absalom rebelled against David, and it appears that Ahithophel was in on the whole thing. And when Absalom rebelled and David was eventually run out of town, Ahithophel stayed and he, he took sides with his rebellious son. And he became a counselor to Absalom instead of his father. And then there's something interesting that happens because when David flees, Ahithophel comes to Absalom and says, hey, let me take some men and we'll follow him and we'll kill him. And some other advisors said, no, no, I don't think that's what we should do, Absalom. What we probably ought to do is just kind of like uh, take it easy, let, let him go away. We don't want to make more people mad at us. We just want to... And so Absalom had to decide, do we go kill David or do we let him go? And he decided to let him go. And Ahithophel is so upset that David let... or that Absalom let David escape... He wanted him dead so badly that he went home and put his house in order and hung himself. What kind of anger and frustration would drive a man to hang himself when he doesn't get his way about killing somebody? There must have been something that happened to have changed Ahithophel's feelings toward David. Maybe. I find it interesting, and I don't know that it's the case, but I find it interesting in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 34, when I start doing a little study about these players, who was Ahithophel? You know who Ahithophel was? He was the father of Eliam. Well, who's Eliam? Oh, wait, wait, we just talked about Eliam, right? And Eliam was the father of Bathsheba. Could it be that what David had done to his granddaughter Bathsheba angered him 
and caused him to betray David? I, I don't know. But that might be one reason that a man would be turned from faithful advisor to, I've got to see him dead, and if he lives, I can't live with the fact that he lives. But those kind of insights, that, that's a question. I don't know the answer to it, but it certainly might prove to be a possibility worth considering. Also, um, when you consider 2 Samuel chapter 12, consider again the players involved. David and Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet comes to David, tells him the parable about the sheep, and, and confronts David and says, David, you're the man. You remember that? We know that story. And Nathan humbled David. It wasn't just a, a uh, direct assault. He came in the side door. He caught David completely blindsided and pulled one over on him. And David said, I've sinned. David could have said, I don't like the way he did that. You know, if he had something to say, he should have said it. He, he shouldn't have set me up like that. that. That's not the way to rebuke or correct anybody. He set me up. That's not what David did. So you got two players in this story. you got David and Nathan. And you know what I find extremely interesting? In 1 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 5, as it's recording the genealogy of David and the children that he had by the various wives that he had, he had four children by Bathsheba. One of them died as a result of a sin. But one of them was named Nathan. David named a son after the man who rebuked him. A lot of us, or a lot of people, might be prone to hate that man. You don't call me down. I'm the king. He could have copped an attitude but not David. He was a man after God's own heart. He took the correction of Nathan and, and he humbled himself and he confessed his sin. And not only that, he gave his son the namesake, Nathan. That tells me something about the man. But you see, did you know? Did you know that David had a son named Nathan? Maybe not. But if we examine the people in the stories the people, the players in the passages, we, we can find those kind of insights. Also, consider the place of a passage. And I've shared this with you before too, but in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and preach to those people, but he didn't. He went to Joppa and got on a ship and he fled the presence of God. I think that what Haddon said this morning was interesting. He did have an excellent point. Jonah was afraid. But he was not, there's nothing in the text that says he was afraid because they were the, the Assyrians and, and they're really mean people. He wasn't afraid, the text doesn't say, he was afraid for his own life, going there and being an enemy. That's not what the text says. But I do believe he was afraid. He was afraid that if they repented, God would forgive. That's what he was afraid of. So Jonah runs from God, from the city of Joppa. What if we did a study on those places? Does Joppa ever else mention in the Bible? Interesting enough, it is. It's where Peter was when God let down that sheet with the animals on it and told him to eat. And God called him 
to go and preach to the Gentiles, Cornelius and his household. And on this occasion, Peter listened. And so here we have a situation where we have the same city, and from that city there's a prophet of God who runs from his duty, and from that same city there's a prophet of God who responds to the call of God. It's an interesting concept. And then we can think, you know, well, actually, I guess I'm kind of, I walk the streets of Joppa. God calls me too. So am I going to run like Jonah, or am I going to answer like the Apostle Peter? Also consider the words that we use, the words that are used in the passages. That will help us to, to gain insight. Get yourself some tools, some resources, and uh, look at some dictionaries, and, and you'll see things that will open up for you. Um, <clears throat> for instance, in um, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, that's that passage where uh, Paul tells Timothy, let no man despise your youth. But be an example of believers, and he goes and lists a number of areas in which to be example. Dis, don't, don't let anybody despise your youth. Your youth. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul says something very similar to Titus. He says, you know, speak, exhort, and let no one despise you. Speak with authority, let no one despise you. And you might think that what Paul was saying is the same thing he said to Timothy. Two young men, two young gospel preachers, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. But Paul was saying different things to both men. I know it's translated by the same English word, but if you do a little word study, if you get yourself a dictionary, you would look in the passage in, that was written to Timothy, and you know what it says to Timothy, don't let anyone think down on you. But that's not the same word that he used for Titus. In Titus, he told him, don't let anyone think around you. Don't let anybody outthink you. Don't let anyone think circles around you. In other words, what he was calling Titus to do is to preach and teach with such an authority that when, in such a way that nobody can outthink you or make you look like you don't know what you're talking about. You think with authority. Don't let anyone outthink you. That's what was said of Jesus. Why? He didn't speak like other men. He didn't speak like the scribes and the Pharisees. He spoke as one who had authority. That's what Paul was calling Titus to do. But he was telling Timothy something totally different. But we'd miss that if we didn't do our word studies. Luke 23 and verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How many times have you heard a sermon on the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross? Father, forgive, but you know, that's in the imperfect tense. You don't have to be a Greek scholar, but it's just, it's past tense that's ongoing. That's what that means. And so what Jesus was saying is not just a declaration, Father, forgive them, but he kept saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know how long he said it and how many times he said it, but it was more than once. Does that change your image of what took place with that statement? Does that give you a little more depth of his commitment by understanding that he kept on saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Consider the timing of a passage. 
Look at Jonah chapter 1. Uh, you know, hadn't talked about that this morning. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and, and chapter 2, verse 1. If you ask the typical person and say, how long did, uh, was Jonah in the belly of the fish praying? And they'd say, three days and three nights. And I'd say, look at that again. It says he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then he prayed. You want to know how rebellious and how stubborn Jonah was? He was three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. Then he finally surrendered to the Lord and said, All right, Lord, that's stubborn. That's really not wanting to go. How long would it take you in the belly of a fish before you cried out to God for help? It wouldn't take very long, would it? Then he prayed after those three days and three nights. That gives you something about the depth of disdain that Jonah had for these people. That tells us why he ran and he didn't want to go preach to them. That tells us and helps us to understand what he said when he said, I was afraid if they would repent, you'd forgive them. I knew that would happen. He really did not want those folks saved. Tells us something about that. When you consider the age of Daniel, the timing of Daniel, Daniel went into uh, captivity in the third year of Jehoiakim, and, and he goes through Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and, and uh, Belshazzar, and, and uh, by the time he's thrown in the lion's den, he's not a young teenage boy. He, he may be upward of 90 years old when he was thrown in the lion's den, but did you have that mental image in your mind? If you just stop and think, the timing of that when he was carried away into captivity into the time when he was actually thrown in the lion's den, he wasn't just a, a lad. He was an older man at this point in his life. So you see, there are things that we can do. There are questions that we can ask. We can visualize and, and look at the story through the eyes of a different player and get a totally different perspective on old stories that we've known and, and read and heard for years and years. If we consider the people connections in a passage and study them and see if they have any history with each other and if there are any connections that might help to explain or bear weight on the topic, uh, consider the setting of a place. Consider the timing of the situation. These things... Um, will help us be better students of the Word of God. If we put these things into practice as we meditate on the Scriptures, we won't be just simply sitting back saying, well, I wish I could see what James Meadows sees when he looks at the Bible. I wish I could read and understand and get the things out of it like Edwin's able to do or Jody or somebody. You'll be able to do it yourself. There's no secret. It's not magic. It doesn't take any special education. It just takes study habits um, that allow you to do that. And hopefully tonight will have been helpful to you as we uh, seek to be better students of the Word of God. Listen, there's nothing more. Last night I, I was talking just a little bit about preaching, but you know, in terms of Bible, there's nothing more you can do more important than getting to know this book. It's great to know and have your favorite ball team and listen to music and be able to 
uh, listen to you know things and say, oh, I know who's saying that. Uh, all that stuff's great. Have at it. But nothing will do you any better than becoming acquainted with the words revealed. This is a book in which the God of heaven, who created this vast universe, decided to allow you to take a look into his mind just a little bit and to know what he thinks and how he feels. That's what we have here. Spend your time wisely, study it, learn it, obey it, and you'll have no regrets. If you're here tonight and you're not yet a child of God, why don't you obey the gospel? Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you haven't done that, why don't you do that tonight? If you're a child of God already but unfaithful and you need to make your life right, you need the prayers of your brethren, we'll pray with you if you'll come as we stand together and sing.